And welcome to Let's Talk Sis, a podcast series brought to you by Forward UK's Young Women's Advisory Council. Forward, the Foundation for Women's Health Research and Development, is the leading African women-led organisation working to end violence against women and girls through extensive partnerships with organisations across the UK, Europe and Africa. Forward UK is known for its work to realise the goal of ending the practice of FGM in one generation, child marriage and all issues related to war. In 1985, Forward UK's campaign criminalised the practice of FGM in the UK through the Prohibition of Female Circumcision Act. Forward UK strongly believes in taking action together, building strong networks and partnerships in the UK, Europe and in Africa with diaspora women's organisations. We are the YWAC, and the YWAC was set up to integrate the voices of young Black, Asian, minority ethnic women to improve engagement with young women on local and international Borg issues, to encourage campaigning and advocacy against Borg issues, and to enable young women to speak out about Borg-related issues with their friends, family, and wider society. So we're going to introduce ourselves. Um, this week, This it's Anisha and Bimpe speaking to you. My name's Anisha. I joined the YWAC three years ago. Um, I had just been an intern and a fellow with Forward, on their Tours Asia Fellowship, and I decided that I wanted to continue working with Forward. I really loved what they did and had met really amazing other young women. So I continued, um, and a personal highlight for me would probably be some of the events we've held uh, on a range of different things, from money management to networking to talking about sexual and reproductive health and the amazing people that turn up at these events and just building our networks. Hi guys, my name is Bimpe. Um, similar to Anisha, I um, started with Forward three years ago, so in 2017. Um, what brought me to the YWAC was, I, or to Forward, was that I wanted to get involved with an organisation that worked um, on issues that affected black women. So after like a lot of research and I came across Forward, I saw the vacancy for the Young Advisory Council, Young Women's Advisory Council, and I applied and yeah, that's it's been. I've been here three years since. Um, I think a highlight for me was in January 2019. We had an event called Let's Talk Sis, which is where the name for this podcast came from, and it was about um, bringing young women together and talking about um, different sexual health issues that we may not necessarily have talk about that we may shy away from to kind of um, highlight these issues and provide a safe space, a comfortable space for women to talk about um, getting tested and healthy relationships and things like that. So that, that was uh, one of the highlights for me. And we have um, a couple of special guests of us today. We have Nana and Adjua um, from Forward. Um, so we just brought them here to talk about their, um, I guess, their experience that they've been they've had with Forward UK for the past three or so decades. Um, so would you guys like to introduce yourselves? My name is Nana Otsu Oyote, and I'm the executive director for Forward. I have been with Forward uh, for 
the last, uh, let's say, 20 odd years. And with the last 12, I have been uh, the executive director. Prior to that, I was on the board of trustees. I did quite a lot of work in my voluntary capacity, supporting uh, a number of project proposal development, policy related issues, but also governance uh, matters within forward. And uh, I actually got stuck when I came in and I've been stuck since. Because I just love Forward. Hi, my name is Ajwa and I joined Forward almost from the beginning. Um, I met the founder, Ifwa Dokenu, and I was so intrigued by the work she was doing and impressed by the work she was doing. I also thought it was very important that we as African women should speak on our own issues. So um, I got involved very early. I, I can't even be sure when exactly I got involved. But I, I can date it to 1986. I had arranged the first ever local authority conference on female genital mutilation for the London Borough of Lambeth. And that was the, the day of the conference was the day I had my first, my second daughter prematurely. So I missed the conference. So if I mark that day, that was 86. So that was, and I've been involved before then. Um, I suppose the highlight of, of the work is seeing the change that has happened since we started 30 years ago. And I must say, Nana was my board chair. I was the executive director. She run me hard. <laughs> Nana, so would you say you have a personal highlight of your many years of working at Forward? I think it's more than one personal highlight, to be honest. Maybe just pick one, just one. Wow, that would really be challenging. I think for me, the highlight of uh, my 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 work at Forward has really been about the Young Women's Leadership Program because that has been like we have been doing a number of uh, initiatives uh, working with uh, partners on young people, young people speak out was one of them. And to be able to have a UK Africa program really looking at young women's leadership with partners in a number of countries for me was quite, uh, I would say, one of the highlights. And to be have successfully worked in, you know, Tanzania and I had the chance to go uh, to Somaliland. That really was the highlight of my uh, uh, career in, in, in forward. And I, I think it's something that I think I'm going to be pushing further as one of the next phase of forward's work, how we can scale up young women's leadership. That's really good to hear because um, Bimpe and myself were both part of the Tuesday Fellowship. And I think it's it's had a really positive impact in our life over the last few years. So of course we want to encourage more young women to join um, I don't know. We both talk about forward a lot, so anyone who will know that we just rave and rave and rave on about it. Um, so it's really good to hear that there's going to be more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to know how would you say your upbringing in Ghana has influenced your career path? Miss mm. Ajwa, it's my career. My career path has not been smooth. I, I am a frustrated doctor. I had intended to uh, go to medical school. Um, I struggled through physics, I have to admit. Um, but what I didn't know, because there's very little career counseling, um, is that you can't get into upper sixth science 
without doing what you call pure maths or additional maths. Maths is not my strong point. So I, I passed the additional science. I really worked hard and I passed it, but I couldn't get into sixth form science. So I diverted and went into clinical psychology, which was as close as I could get to medical school. Um, but then I, I got sucked into the issues around development. And I've left the clinical psychology behind and moved into development. And that's where I've been ever since. But I think all of it boils down to the fact that I want to help people. I want to help women. I think that has been my driving force, helping women and children. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I came from a different perspective in the sense that having been brought up in a home where I lived with stepmothers, I never really grew up with my mom. I really always felt that I needed to reach out to others and uh, use my experience to support as many people as possible. And I was always a person in school that would stand up to bullies. And uh, so nobody ever bullied me. I was always the one who would, you know, hold on to bullies and that kind of thing. And and so I didn't like fighting, but I was quite tough in, in the way I approached uh, when people were, uh, <laughs> there was mm-hmm. any injustice around me. And I think I took that right to the, the university and I went to university. And I think one of the landmarks in the universities, I had a roommate who was from Northern Ghana. And uh, those were the days when we were in university. We had the Saluta and we were, you know, against the government at the time. We used to really go and uh, go into the streets and demonstrate and things against the, the, the ruling uh, government at the time. It was the Kutua Champo and all those kinds of things. So it was really exciting times. But they closed the university. And so we had to all rush home. And uh, my, my roommate said, look, she was going to Northern Ghana. Do I want to go with her to visit home? So that was my first to Northern Ghana and I just fell in love with Northern Ghana because I came from the South and really going to Northern Ghana and really seeing the uh, poverty but also the beauty and the kindness of people I just fell in love with it so when I finished university incidentally my husband also was given my boyfriend at the time he was sent to Northern Ghana to do his national service and at the time he had to do national service as a student so I again went to uh, you know Northern Ghana with him, and whilst I was there, I was told that um, there was a job coming up in Northern Ghana uh, for a project officer, and whether I was interested, I readily applied for it, and I went into that job, and uh, that was my beginning of development, and I did quite a lot of work at the time, women in development, training male extension workers and female extension workers. I remember. Everybody used to say that, look at this small girl I mean, working with. And of course, I was very tiny. Not other, I've got to put on a black flesh. I was really tiny. I had these big glasses. And it's like, I'll look at people under my eyes and say, who is this small girl from the South who is always behaving, you know, like she is, she knows it all. But I was very confident, you know, and uh, that really ushered me into training. And I loved training right from the beginning. And that has how my journey in development has been. I went on to work with uh, women in, um, agriculture. I went on to work with women in uh, microcredit. And then I did work with the National Council on Women and Development on uh, helping rural women and women doing entrepreneurship. And so 
after I'd worked for about 10 years, I wanted to do my master's and I readily got a, a scholarship. And that's what brought me to UK to do development at the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex. And that again, really, really drew me into other paradigms of development and issues around sexual and reproductive health matters. And that really was my turning point. I said, wow, I should have known more about this whilst I was growing. So those were the things that really ushered me into development. And here I am now in forward, having worked with International Planned Parenthood with the Commonwealth Secretariat. I really gained quite a number of skills there that enabled me to see the beauty of working not only with diaspora here, but also internationally and working with countries of origin in Africa. So that's been my passion ever since I've been a child. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, in 1985, Ford UK's plan led to the 1985 Prohibition of Female Circumcision Act. So in addition to that, Ford has done a lot of work and trained professionals in the Mayor of London Office for Policing and Crime, um, the NSPCT, the Refugee Council, on best practices on how to navigate folk issues and safeguard women and girls. So my question is for the both of you, what are some of the key ways you engage with professionals from non-FGM practicing communities? So for forward, what we always do is put it in the context of human rights. Yeah. Try to demystify it and try to make it less threatening. Yeah. So you put it in the context of a range of human rights abuses. You put it into the context of something that is a social norm yeah. in communities that practice it. Mm -hmm. I try to disengage the issues of um, why people do FGM from the Eurocentric uh, perception of abuse mm. and recognize that it is still an abuse of children's rights and to make sure that they are, in a lot of ways, it's almost like reassuring them and giving them the confidence to be able to respond appropriately. Mm. Because what I've always found is they either overreact and rush into families and remove girls or do things that are damaging to the family structure, or they do nothing. They are paralyzed, they can't do anything, and they say, oh, if I interfere, to be racist. So it's almost a, a, a complete opposite. So you've got to give them the confidence to be able to look at it objectively and to respond appropriately. It is an abuse. It doesn't necessarily mean that you remove the girl from home. If everything else ensures her safety, and you then work with the family. Because the reality of it is no uh, uh, practicing community wants to hurt their children. Mm -hmm. They aren't doing it because they hate their daughters. They're doing it because it's a social norm and they think they must conform. Mm -hmm. So that's, you've got to put it in that context and you've got to take it step by step and give them that paradigm within mm -hmm. which and operate so that they're able to work and provide a, a good service. It's interesting when you actually said something about, um, you know, parents also, you know, they don't hate their children. And sometimes you do training and you tell them or you go for uh, conferences and you say that, you know, um, African women do this to their children because they love them. They said, no, it's not love. That can't be love, you know. Yeah. And you actually ask the different perceptions of love in a context where people have no clue about the context where FGM takes place. And, and the fact that uh, communities do it because it's not only a social norm, but it's also to enable the girl to get married. Mm -hmm. So all those 
um, institutions that require girls having to sort of be controlled, etc. It's something that people don't understand here. I also find it very interesting in terms of where we are coming from and the fact that FGM is almost always seen as the othering of abuse. Mm -hmm. So you see terms like, it's a harmful traditional practice. Um, it's, you know, uh, it's barbaric. It's barbaric. I mean, ask yourself, how barbaric is domestic violence? Mm -hmm. yeah. And at the end of the day, domestic violence, women are dying every day. Men, adults, men are beating their wives to death. Yes, it's done by both men and know whether it's black or white or blue people are they are all doing it but the fact that fgm almost always is just seen as a different form of abuse mm. you know mm. it really is very sad but again we are talking in the situation of black lives matter and you're seeing very much anything black is actually seen as different mm. Mm. and that othering is something that we really need to break that cycle and mm. so some of the things that we've done yes i just mentioned training but also provision of advice you'd be surprised mm the number and the type of advisor you have to give. And somebody will, will call and say, oh, um, I know somebody who is going to Nigeria. Um, I think um, her daughter would be at risk. And I said, but do you know whether the person has been through FGM herself? Do you know where she's going? I mean, do you know whether she comes from a community that practices FGM? And all these things, there are a lot of ignorance in terms of how they perceive things and professionals and how they take action. But I think one of the things that has also been very helpful for us in terms of how we engage is the issue of using evidence and research. Mm. We have repeatedly talked about the need for research, but the first research we did on prevalence is what really sparked a lot of similar research mm. in Europe. So again, that for us was like, we need evidence. Thank you, that's really helpful. Um, it's good to talk about cultural sensitivity. Which leads me into our next question. So in the last three years, Forward UK has reached almost 33,000 people, which is amazing, across sub-Saharan Africa in Uganda, Tanzania, Somaliland, and Ethiopia and East Africa, and Sierra Leone and Ghana in West Africa. Are we missing mm -hmm. any countries there? Um, I think in the three years, these are the only countries. And Ethiopia. So a couple more East African countries. So my question is, what are some of the major shifts in the past three decades that you've seen since the founding of Forward? And what do you think the future of Forward UK looks like? Wow. I think for me, one of the things that has really been strategic about Forward is that we've always been pioneers in, in, in this uh, field. And uh, it's interesting, just... Um, just today, I was working on the interns and volunteers handbook, and I just said, oh, there is a missing link in terms of the forward history. And I went back to the forward history and looking at how Efua started this because she had come across a woman who was delivering, who was not being given adequate care. And that sparked her interest in really doing more research in this area, which then sparked off the whole uh, work around FGM and FGM being put on the agenda in terms of the um, Geneva human rights agenda, putting FGM on the agenda, uh, sparked off the establishment of the Inter-Africa Committee on uh, Harmful Practices, but also on Forward. So these were really landmarks that Forward really initiated. Then coming back, in terms of other uh, areas that Forward has been instrumental in, has been the policy development in the policy uh, area. We were instrumental, and I think UK was one of the first countries in Europe, was it after Sweden, 
to have introduced uh, legislation which always led on in terms of, of FGM. So again, we knew that legislation was quite uh, critical uh, for tackling this uh, human rights violation because yes, it's been admitted to be a grave human rights violation. And it was essential that governments would put in measures to protect and respect uh, 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 their, their law, their sort of, I would say, their duties in terms of how they should respond to it. Um, maybe I'll leave Ajwa to also take, uh, take us through some of the gains that she has seen in, in the last three decades. I think one of the, the big changes is that when we started, nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what FJM was. Nobody even knew what female genital mutilation was. But now, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know what it is. Uh, my, my standard is if you can get into a taxi and the taxi driver knows what you're talking about, then you've, made, you've actually broken through. When we first started, if you got into a taxi and you were going to BBC and put an interview, and they said, why are you going to the BBC? They said, I'm going to talk about... Um, female genital mutilation, your, the response is, what's that then? <laughs> no, no, nowhere you go where you mention FGM where people don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a, a good move. And I also think, as Nana said, it's now on the agenda that Forward has been leading in working with young people in schools so that children themselves have the language, have the understanding to be able to disclose when they are at risk which is very important because um, not their responsibility, but if they disclose, then we can protect. But if they don't disclose because they don't even know what it is or they don't have the words for it, then it becomes difficult. So in this space, in this uh, kind of look at it this way, FGM is like child sexual abuse. If the child doesn't have the words, then you can't protect. There's that issue. I think the other big development, maybe for me personally, was the last elections in Somalia, where each Somaliland, where each of the presidential candidates took a position against FGM. And this is a country where 98% of the women have gone through FGM. And it was, it was a platform issue. They haven't done anything since they've come into power, but at least it was on the agenda. So it's that silence has been broken and hopefully the change will come. So I think there are many, there are many positives and we keep hoping uh, that the positives will continue. So, mm-hmm. for example, Nana mentioned the Tourism Young Women's uh, Leadership module that we are implementing the program. We've now got over 100 young women in the countries that we train. So we've got a cohort of young women leaders who are going to be able to articulate and bring the changes as young women like Anisha and Bimpe go out there and get themselves into those spaces of power, then again, the issue becomes um, more disclosed and we can get the changes we want to see. So there's been a lot. We've got men speaking out against FGM now. Our project is speak out. So we're getting there. I think they're not there yet, but I think... We're getting there. But I think one of the good things for us that has been really amazing has been the work we've done at the European uh, level. Uh, We have been instrumental in the setup of the NFGM 
European uh, network. And I would say we were co-founders, um, having been part of the NFGM campaign, which led a five-year campaign to really put FGM on the European policy agenda. And after the five-year campaign, uh, some of us uh, felt that there was a need to consolidate and have a European-wide network that brings together European organizations working towards ending FGM. Five years down the line now, we do have a vibrant organization. Uh, we, as forward, have been instrumental in leading. Uh, I was uh, president for about four years, and now we also have talks. My other colleague, who's a, a co a, a president of the network. And this network has been an instrumental network and is now drawing uh, a global networks together. The network in the US was shaped around the work that was done uh, uh, around that. The network also in Canada was very much based on the establishment of. So there's been ripple effects in terms of the different uh, 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 you know, networks that have actually come out of this one network in the European uh, network on, on ending FGM. So it's really exciting. I mean, very often you see forward hands in so many things. And I think even uh, uh, both Anisha and uh, Bimpe, you were at the recent um, event that you did, uh, Positive Vibes. Oh, yeah. And I came That's across right. Kadra and we were talking and Kadra said, oh, no, no, you know, I it was forward that sparked my interest in research. We said, really? She said, yeah, you remember we did this uh, youth research maybe, you know, early, maybe about 10 years ago. And that was a research that really participatory research with young people that really sparked their interest. And as she's head of, you know, children's uh, uh, mental health, uh, children and young people really focusing on research. So again, you come across so many people that Forward has influenced and shaped and, and, and mentored in different ways. And it's really exciting to see that in part of this bigger, you know, uh, 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 critical mass of people who have really making different and making waves to really uh, make an input in, in tackling this issue of female genital mutilation. Yeah. I think you're right about the point um, about the taxi driver test and how now most people do know what you're talking about when you're talking about FGM um, compared to even, mm. I would say, like five years ago mm. when I know both Simpia and I have been studying and have been speaking about FGM for quite a while. Mm. A lot mm -hmm. of people either weren't sure or maybe had heard about it in passing, but now they seem to even have their own like opinion or they've read up or seen a documentary or something. So that's, mm. um, yeah, it's good to hear and it's, it's good that there's a lot of progress across the world. So, Adjo, you mentioned um, in Somaliland that it was mentioned in campaigns. So how do you mm. feel about the progress that we've seen in Sudan in recent months? Well, I mean, interestingly, Sudan has had a law since, what, 1849 or something? Oh, 1939. Is it 39? Oh, 18 is too far. 1939. <laughs> is it 1939? <laughs> <laughs> so long ago. Um, so it, it's good they've got legislation. It's good that they are going to put something in the statute books. Then it becomes the implementation and the rolling out to the communities to mm. understand what this law means. For example, when Ghana had their law, 
because FGM is practiced in the north of the country and not the south, mm-hmm. capital and parliament is in the south. Mm-hmm. The that they pass a law in Accra doesn't mean that the woman knows anything about it. Mm-hmm. Because the practice in Sisala, it means nothing to her. Once she doesn't read, they don't have newspaper. She doesn't mm-hmm. have access to radio. Mm-hmm. Somebody talks to her and makes her understand the law and then also makes her understand why she should abandon that cultural practice. Nothing will change. I'm glad they've done it. Uh, now let's hold them to account. Um, it is surprising that Sudan has taken so long, considering they are supposed to be um, among the most educated with Al-Fayed University. They've got this large number of educated Sudanese women. So why is it taking so long? But there's also been a very uh, a well-funded uh, DFID, UNICEF, UN joint program in Sudan for so many years. And now the Salima uh, initiative, which is being rolled out by the Africa Union, is really based on the initiative that was um, started in, in Sudan. So maybe there is a move now because of that whole Project. And it's sometimes a long time for these things to get off the ground, but that's what's really happening now. Yeah. But it I want to be sustained. You see, this is the challenge. I want to talk a little bit about what we do as forward in terms of the sustaining uh, organizations, because a lot of the work we do in Africa is really about partnership. And it's interesting, even in Sudan, we worked there for so many years uh, with the Inter Africa Committee in, in, in Sudan. But I will see her. Yes, yes, yes. And we see her as well. Strategic initiative for the whole of Africa. Africa, yeah. And and one of the things that we do through uh, our work around um, partnership building, we have a model we call the FAST model. And really, it's about fundraising to support uh, initiatives because a lot of local organizations do not necessarily have the capacity to fundraise effectively or access even in-country funding. So we do a lot of fundraising and also accompaniment. And we accompany our partners in so many diverse ways, monitoring, mentoring, supporting, holding hands. You'll be amazed at how daily emails will be going backwards and forwards on a range of things to really enable them to have the uh, skills, but also to have the information to make decisions. And then there is the, uh, the support, which is a technical support that is ongoing, sustainable technical support. And that sustainable technical support is really about developing tools for them, building capacity of their staff, but also linking them in country to other sometimes funders or to other partnerships to strengthen their partnership working. And I think this is a model that very often uh, people don't see but you put a lot of effort into this building and the partnership capacity to be able to make things work. And you'll find that sometimes even the partners on the ground forward will have to then go and make links even with the UN agencies. In Tanzania, for example, we had to go into Tanzania to link our local partner to UNFPA, and now they've become their uh, partners for implementing partners for a long time now. So that's also something that has really been part of our work and in supporting uh, partners to be strong and sustain uh, sustain their work also in, in, in reaching out to girls and women on these issues. So I just want to know, as Ghanaian women, how do you and other women from the wider African diaspora 
by navigating the international development sector? It's complex. It's, um, it can be very difficult. Sometimes you find yourself the lone voice in those spaces because there aren't a lot of us in a lot of those spaces. Um, you may find that even though you are a, a black woman, an African woman, a woman of color in, an, in a development organization which purports to speak for or on behalf of other disadvantaged black minority ethnic uh, communities, you may find that you yourself are suffering harassment and oppression. You are being silenced. You are being sidelined. You are not being given the opportunities to rise. As we said before, if your contribution isn't valued, then it becomes very difficult. And as we can see from Nana mentioned earlier, the Black Lives Matter discourse, what is happening and people speaking out about the issues that they are facing, then you know that this is an issue that stems through development. For me, uh, it's also uh, the fact that uh, very often our knowledge is excluded experiences and insights of, of being diaspora, uh, working in development, are also often uh, excluded. And uh, we, are, we are consulted and engaged, but we're never given the opportunity to really lead. And so, again, uh, the fact that that means that we tend to be always small and we don't really have the opportunity to sort of scale up. But uh, we see our hands in so many things. And I think that's also the resilience that we have as organizations to be able to always um, even contribute when, uh, 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 you know, when we are even excluded. And I, I, I recall to also create spaces that we can influence and shape. So at the moment, at the moment, I am on the board of the Gender and Development Network, which is a network of development uh, organizations working on gender equality issues, influencing and shaping uh, agenda for DFID. So this is a, a structure that enables us to have a kind of uh, inroad into how we can engage. The other issue is the work we do uh, through the Africa Diaspora Women's Network, which is a newly established network which aims to also help diaspora organizations, particularly diaspora women's organizations, to have a voice, to have a platform, and to be able to strengthen our policy engagement. And finally, at the European level, Forward is a member of the African uh, Diaspora uh, uh, Network, again, which is ADEPT. And as part of the work of ADEPT, which is you know, a development agencies in uh, Europe working on development, we are able to also shape the agenda on migration and development, bringing our expertise and also informing and shaping uh, development policy. And that's something that we feel we can continue and we should continue to do. Recently, we had written a letter to DFID around the COVID, uh, telling them our, our uh, uh, experiences from our partners on the issue of girls, uh, and the nature of discrimination and abuse, but also the impact of COVID on girls and young women in Africa. And this is some insight that we got because we had partners who were working on the ground. So in a way, we tried to shape, uh, despite us being excluded in, in many ways from the, the bigger uh, development uh, 
conversations. But I mean, that's what uh, the whole development uh, engagement, this whole Black Lives Matter is also throwing more light into the need to really unpick. There is this new campaign, Charity So White, really, really looking at the fact that, hang on, why is charities doing development also white? What is the issue that's excluding black people? And how are, what have been black people's experiences in working in these uh, uh, organizations? There is a, a young women-led organization called Diasporic Development, and their push is very much about how do we uh, develop a platform for African and Caribbean uh, professionals to be able to also have a voice and have an experience and really be able to uh, know how to network better because when your network is basically your net worth. So how do you get networks that would enable you to have a foot into a, a development organization? So yeah, there are different things happening. It's about how do we strengthen our collective voices to really make a, 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 a to really amplify uh, our uh, situation and our position. So speaking about networking, uh, the YWAC, last November, we hosted an event called Cast Your Net, where we connected different professionals within the NGO sector um, with young women interested in working in the sector. Um, so Adra was there, was present, and she imparted a lot of wisdom for us. We really enjoyed her having it, having, enjoyed having her there, excuse me, and especially um, she spoke on um, the importance of being organised and prepared to challenge imposter syndrome. So can we just get both of you, uh, what are your kind of key tips on challenging imposter syndrome? And also um, for anyone, any young women that are listening to this, what would you say is the best way to get your foot in to the international development sector? So those two questions. Wow. <laughs> Big ones. I know, it's really, really big. We know you have the answers, though. We know. <laughs> Imposter syndrome, I think it's it's about, again, building your self-confidence and your self-worth. Mm. And for a lot of us, we've, we've sort of, being in this land has chipped away at our value of ourselves. Mm. So it's about how we reclaim that sense of who we are and the right that we have to be in those spaces. And part of that is also being prepared wherever you go. And that's why I said it's important to be prepared. Because sometimes you may be the lone voice in that space, and it's important that you, you, are, you present and you know what your issues are and you articulate them very clearly. And also to remember, and I just shared this, Men, when men feel they can do 50% of a job, they will apply yeah, yeah. with all confidence. Women will not apply unless they feel they can do 90% of the same job. So we need to recognize that the people who may be in that job may not be any more qualified for than you. In fact, you may be better prepared and you need to take that on. Have that belief in yourself. We are worthy. We we belong in these spaces. I actually think the other thing is don't take anything lightly. Um, if you want to work in development, recognize that you may never make a lot of money. If you want to make money, it's not development. Go into the corporate sector. 
but you will get a lot of joy and a lot of personal satisfaction from seeing the development in either the beneficiaries you're working with, the partners you're working with, or the countries in which you are working, seeing that change happen. Uh, since Nana went into development the proper way through academic and through a, a program work, I will defer to her because I came to it via the back door for clinical psychology. So it's interesting talking about this imposter syndrome. I mean, I, I personally feel that um, it's it's because we we often are not in those spaces. 